Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScript devotees. I'm Matt Lynch, a co-host of the podcast. For those of you who are just getting to know us, by the way, we're a collective of scholars who interview other scholars about stuff that interests us in the area of Bible and theology, and our aim is to bring you in on some of the conversations that we have behind the scenes in the dark corridors of conferences and at the back of lecture halls after the crowds dissipate. So we hope you enjoy the show. A quick request, if there's any joy among you, could I ask that you head them head on over to your iTunes account and give us a rating to remember. Also, if anyone has connections with the World of Outlaws super sprint car racing, you know, the kind that happens on the, the third mile dirt tracks, uh, we've decided unanimously on script at our um, ang- annual general meeting uh, that attendees of such races are, in fact, our target audience, and we'd love to get a shout out over the loudspeaker at some of their events or perhaps an even an advert on one of their cards. Uh, so if anyone has connections with the world of outlaws, we'd really appreciate that. Thanks for listening, and in this episode, I interview Professor Benjamin Sommer. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch, and I am here today with Professor Benjamin Sommer, who is Professor of Bible and Ancient Semitic Languages at Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. He's the author of Revelation and Authority, Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition, which we'll be discussing today. He's also the author of Jewish Concepts of Scripture, Comparative Introduction, A Prophet Reads Scripture, Illusion in Isaiah 40-66, and The Bodies of God in the World of Ancient Israel, published in 2009. So, Professor Summer, welcome to OnScript. Hello, great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Um, uh, I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear a bit about uh, your background and how you got into study of the Bible. Is this something you grew up with? In a, uh, did you grow up in an um, Orthodox home, or how, how, what was your exposure to the Bible at an early age? So I was interested in biblical studies from a surprisingly early age, I think. I grew up in a home that's affiliated with the conservative movement. We belong to a conservative synagogue, which, oddly enough, is one of the liberal branches of American Judaism. Uh, And I think that we were probably one of the more involved families in that setting. Um, But it wasn't an Orthodox home, though I did have a lot of Orthodox and and ultra-Orthodox relatives. Uh, And I don't know, somehow, from a very, very young age, I was very, very interested in religion, generally, in Judaism, in the Bible, uh, even as a little, little kid, I remember playing rabbi, you know, making my family sit through services while I wore this, you know, toy talit, you know, the, the, the prayer covering, um, and tried to read from an English translation of some Jewish prayer book that I wasn't really able to quite read from. So, no, this, this is just something I think that's been part of me uh, since I was very, very little. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think captured you about it? It's very hard to say. To begin with, I think that, and here I'm, I'm thinking of some of the ideas of the great uh, theorist of religion, Rudolf Otto, just like there are some people who are more musical and have perfect pitch, uh, or are just, you know, better at music, and there are some people who are better at sports, I think that there, there may be people who just have something of a natural inborn inclination towards religion. I, I see this very much with my own son who pretty much from the time he could talk was talking about God, asking questions about God, saying things about God, not necessarily always deeply theologically profound things. When he was three, he said that God has a blue car. I wasn't sure where that was coming from, although I, I, I did think a little bit about Ezekiel. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a good deduction based on the color of the sky, potentially. The color of the sky, you know. <laughs> Exodus 24 comes into play there. Um, so part of it, in all seriousness, may just be that some people uh, just have a natural inclination towards religion. I think, though, as I got older, that the intellectual side of religious studies really did attract me, and maybe the combination of an intellectual interest, 
an interest that provides identity and provides meaning uh, just spoke to me. And by the time I was in high school, I was already learning about modern biblical criticism, learning about traditional Jewish approaches to the Bible, uh, and already thinking about becoming a professor of biblical studies. Wow. And where, so in already in high school, so where would you have had access to um, teachers and, and instructors who would have pointed you toward uh, biblical criticism and so on? Because I'm thinking back to my experience, and that just it wasn't even an option, you know, because I wasn't exposed to it. So it... How would you have been exposed to it? So, you know, already when I was in, let me think, sixth grade, and I was attending the, the Hebrew school of the synagogue that we were members of. The Hebrew school, you know, meets after schools. It's about five hours. Back then, it was about five hours a week. One of my Hebrew school teachers was doing a PhD in biblical studies at Columbia University. He was kind of teaching Hebrew school on the side to make some money, um, as indeed I did when I was in graduate school years later. And so in part through him, I think also in part through, uh, through some reading, through some novels by the great Jewish novelist Chaim Potok. He has a novel in the beginning, which is about uh, a kid who grows up and becomes a biblical scholar. And then when I was in high school, uh, because I was very, very interested in Jewish studies, the the teachers and the rabbis at the, at the Hebrew school that, from my own synagogue in New Jersey, uh, they urged me not to continue at their own Hebrew school, but to go to another program, a Hebrew school program for high school students that, meet, that met at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is actually where I now work. Uh, so in high school, I would take a bus twice a week uh, into New York, and I took classes for high school students at JTS. And the teachers there, most of them were rabbinical students, and they taught us a combination of modern biblical scholarship and traditional Jewish approaches to the Bible. I think, by the way, part of the reason that I just have never found much of a, con of a conflict between modern biblical criticism and my own religious life is that the people who introduced me to modern biblical criticism were themselves religious Jews, people who were studying to be rabbis, and it just wasn't a conflict. It, 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 there wasn't an assumption that this had to be a problem. Did you have the same passion and interest in uh, Mishnah and Talmud as well? or I've never had quite as much interest in Mishnah and Talmud as I do in Bible. Um, I, uh, I find the combination of narrative and law and poetry and ritual in the Bible very, very compelling. Uh, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a varied work that appeals in part to my imaginative side and to my interest in literature. In, in the Talmud, the Talmud is also a very, very varied work, and it too mixes law and narrative, but you don't get narratives that are quite the same sort of literary narratives that you have in the Bible. You don't get the poetry, uh, and there's a lot more emphasis in the Talmud on sort of intricate logical thinking uh, that appeals to some people's minds. It, 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 it's, not, it's not who I am. It doesn't quite speak to me as much as Bible does. I think also that Bible interests me in part because it's a shared scripture. It's a Jewish scripture and it is also a Christian scripture. And there's an extent to which I think I'm just interested in the, the Jewish-Christian dialogue side of Bible and sort of the larger world to which the Bible intends to speak. Hmm. So, so you mentioned poetry there. So uh, I know that you're currently working on, is it the JPS commentary for Psalms? Correct. Or certain Psalms? Or are you doing the whole, the whole book or what? Uh, the, the, the Jewish Publication Society commentary on Psalms will come out in five volumes. I'm editing the five-volume set, and I'm writing volume one, which will include the introduction to the whole Psalter and also the commentary on Psalms 1 through 30. Okay. All right. That's uh, that would be a tall order to do all 150 and do them justice. Correct. Uh, so Correct. Are, are, who who who's doing the other volumes? Are you, are you able to say? Uh, yeah. So, volume two uh, is being done by my colleague at JTS, uh, Alan Cooper. Volume three is being done by a scholar from Hebrew University who recently retired, Yair Zakovich. Volume four is uh, my friend and teacher Mark Brettler, who teaches now at Duke University. And uh, Volume 5, which is complete, uh, was written by Adele Berlin, who recently retired from the University of Maryland. Also, all five volumes will have sidebars on the, on the Psalms, 
by a professor from Hebrew University named Avigdor Shinan, and the sidebars will briefly describe the various uses of each individual psalm in Jewish liturgical and ritual tradition. So where it, where it shows up in Jewish prayers, but also where it shows up in sort of less well-known Jewish rituals, Kabbalistic rituals, mm. and so forth. Mm. Yeah, that seems to be following a trend toward reception history in, at the commentary level. Um, I've, I've seen that several other places as well. Um, so that's yeah, and it's, I, I'm really happy with this that part of the commentary um, that Avigdor uh, is doing because it's reception history, but reception by the community, not just reception by scholars in the Middle Ages who wrote commentaries, but reception by actual Jewish communities who use Psalm 9 for this purpose, who use Psalm 122 for that purpose. Okay, so as you've been working through Psalms 1 to 30, what are some you know, surprising insights you've had or things that you've had to rethink, maybe even about how the Psalms work? I think that some of the surprises have to do with ritual uses of the Psalms in antiquity and how those ritual uses do and do not relate to ritual uses in contemporary Judaism. So, I'll, I'll give you two examples. Psalm 24, um, I think that when you look at it carefully, there's a strong argument to be made that it was probably recited on the New Year's festival in ancient Israel, um, and that in ancient Israel, some, uh, excuse me, in, in ancient Israel, during New Year's festivals, it was common to do some sort of ritual procession. We see these in, in New Year's festivals in Babylonia, in Assyria. Probably something similar happened in ancient Israel, in the Temple in Like Jer an entrance liturgy or something like that, right? Is that what... Yeah. Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so there would be a sort of processional. In Babylonia, you would be processing with the statue of the, of the god, of the god Marduk, for example. In ancient Israel, I think that probably while Psalm 24 was being recited, the Levites were making a circuit with the Ark of the Covenant and going back into uh, going back into the temple itself. And when you just read Psalm 24 by itself, it seems a little bit jumpy, a little kind of jerky. But when you realize the way it was probably used ritually as the Levites were ascending towards the Temple Mount, it actually reads a lot more smoothly when you're imagining the ritual process that the psalm was a part of. Part of the reason that this really interests me is that in, in Rabbinic Judaism, when we read the Torah on, on Mondays and Thursdays in the morning and also on Saturday afternoon, we do a little processional when we take the Torah out of the Ark and then we do another little processional marching around the synagogue with the Torah scroll when we are done reading the Torah, when we put it back in the Ark. And on Monday and Thursday mornings, on Saturday afternoons, the psalm that we recite during that processional is Psalm 24. So I think that there is a link between the ancient Near Eastern use of this psalm 2,500, 2,800 years ago and the way the psalm is still being used today in Judaism, it's still being used for a processional. Uh, and I think that that's the sort of continuity between ancient practice and modern practice that I find really, really fascinating. Yeah, and then I guess that says something about the way you conceive of the Torah scrolls themselves as a sort of visual um, presence of God or you know, a manifestation of God's presence. Correct, correct. Yeah. That, that it, it has taken the place that a statue of a god would have uh, had in ancient Babylonian or Canaanite or Assyrian religion. Uh, scholars have widely noted that about the Torah, that the Torah is a representation of God, and in Jewish mysticism, the Torah can even be considered a locus of the presence of God, the literal presence of God. Um, this use of Psalm 24 today echoing the use of Psalm 24 with the Ark of the Covenant in antiquity is, is another great example of that use of the Torah in Judaism. Yeah, it, it reminds me too, speaking of Psalms, of I can't remember who wrote the book, but there's a, a book on Psalm 119 that, that, that looks at all the ways that Psalm 119 speaks about the law in ways that other texts in the Bible speak of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, I lift my hands to your law, or I... 
uh, I, I can't remember all the all the specific phrases, but there are things that are elsewhere in the Bible would be spoken of Yahweh. Correct. I think. I wonder if you're thinking of Kent Reynolds' book, Torah. Yeah, it could be uh, Torah as leader. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe so. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, you see that in a number of places in Psalms, uh, and really in a number of places in, in also in rabbinic Judaism that Torah takes the place and maybe even represents uh, or presents the presence of God. Um, I think another way that I've, as I've been thinking of ritual uses of the Psalms, that was was interesting to me, was surprising to me, has been to look especially at the Psalms of complaint, or what are sometimes called the Psalms of lament, and to think about how they functioned in ancient Israel. Um, They... I think that it was probably the case that a person with, who was in crisis might go to a temple and a Levite might listen to the person's problems and then choose a particular psalm of complaint and the Levite would say, okay, so repeat after me. It may even been the case that Levites or scribes or sages would make house calls. People who were sick and couldn't get out of bed might have recited one of these when the Levite came to, to visit the person at home. And I think it, it's been... It's especially been interesting to me teaching at a seminary, talking about this kind of use of the Psalms with rabbinical students, also with ministerial students. Um, in the United States, we have this thing called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education, where rabbinical students, ministry students, now there's, there are non-Jewish, non-Christian students who are part of CPE programs, will be working in hospitals, but also meeting with mentors at their seminary to talk about what they're doing with patients in the hospital. I've presented to to CPE groups that include both Jews and Christians. Some of the CPE groups have included Muslims. Uh, it's really interesting talking about this use of the Psalms because it, it, it's not always obvious how the Psalms might have been used that way, but once you show it to a person, it really does become quite clear. And in particular, noting how some of the Psalms of complaint end with with statements of great confidence has been interesting. It's also been really interesting, I think for many of the students, surprising to notice how many of the Psalms of complaint end without that statement of confidence, how sometimes the Psalms of complaint are very, very raw, very angry at God. I, I think it's really quite remarkable that Scripture includes these texts that express anger at God, that that has a place in Scripture, that that has a place in religion. And I think that we, we, we learn from the presence of those psalms that a person who's doubting doesn't have, to, doesn't have to leave the religious community. There's room for doubt in a traditional Jewish or Christian community because there's room for doubt and anger in Jewish and Christian scripture. And so I think thinking, it happens that Psalms 1 through 30 have a lot of Psalms of complaint. Uh, so the Psalms I've especially been working on uh, have helped me to, to focus on that issue, which I think is a really important issue. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, think, I think of the phrase um, by, I can't remember exactly, but Elie Wiesel in his book Night, he, he talks about, a, a, he says something like, a Jew can be a Jew uh, with God, a Jew could be a Jew against God. But without God, no. There can be that sort of with, but also against um, within the believing community. To me personally, and, and I think for the people I talk to as well about lament, the, one of the most difficult things is that language of accusation. Uh, so it's one thing to express, God, I don't feel like you're present, or I, I can't see where you're at work here, I'm doubting. But then to actually accuse, that just feels like you know, something in me that feels like that's that's a step too far, but yet the the Psalms give plenty of, uh, you know, basis for doing that. The Psalms give plenty of room for that, uh, as does Job in the Book of Job. Now there are other characters in the Book of Job who have a, who have a different point of view, but of course at the end of the Book of Job, God steps in and says, oh, "No, actually, Job is right," um, and the people who, and God says that the people who were defending God were wrong. Uh, so there's now that's not all of Jewish and Christian scripture, but there's room for this in Jewish and Christian scripture. Uh, it sort of saddens me sometimes when, when Jews or Christians, especially from a very very traditionalist background, end up sort of just leaving the community altogether, um, end up checking out completely from religion. 
because they seem to assume that, well, you can't have the doubts that I have and still remain religious, uh, and the book of Psalms tells us, no, that's, that's not the case. There are moments in a, a religious person's life when a religious person is doubting, and that's part of the religious, that's part of the religious experience, that's part of religious life. Uh, there's a place for, for that person in the community. So maybe you can shed light on um, a, a certain Jewish practice. Um, so I remember reading a number of years ago an interview with uh, Kaim Potok, and he was talking about uh, a practice in synagogue for him growing up. Um, and and it went something like if someone, it, they would before the synagogue service would even start, if someone had a, a complaint with God, they would go to the front of the synagogue, open the curtains to the tor- where the scrolls were, and shout at God. And only after that practice, and, you know, after that was done, people had voiced their complaints, did the service itself start. Now, do you know anything about that tradition? You know, honestly, I don't. I, I, there, there was a practice in, it, you, you could find in some European, Eastern European synagogues, that sometimes when a person had some sort of complaint within the community or against a member of the community, a person could go on to, uh, go up to the ark uh, or up to the reader stand uh, and voc- and vocalize that. But that practice you're mentioning, you know, complaining specifically to God out loud, could be, but I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, because he, um, he, he, he said sometimes, you know, if a person went on for too long, someone would come up and sort of lead them to the side and say, okay, <laughs> we, we have to get started here. But, you know, just that, the sort of openness at the beginning of that service and not pushing it off to the side, but saying right at the beginning, yes, there's space for that. Always struck me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not familiar with it. Now, Potak grew up in New York City. You know, he was a kid back in the 20s, 30s, early 40s. Probably there were practices from Eastern European synagogues that were still vibrant in the world that he grew up in that are probably a lot harder to find nowadays. That's certainly not something that I've ever seen in synagogues that I've been to in the United States or Israel. Yeah, yeah I've always been curious about that. Um, well, I'd love to talk um, a bit about your book, Revelation and Authority, uh, Sinai in Jewish, Jewish Scripture and Tradition. And uh, maybe if you could just give our listeners a, a brief overview of what it was you were trying to wrestle through in that book, that would be helpful. So in some ways, I think part of what I'm trying to do in that book is to explain how I can be a biblical critic and a law-observant traditional Jew. And this gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of our interview. Uh, in a sense, I was trying to explain why I, I just don't feel the tension. I, I don't really quite see why that should be a problem. Uh, whereas so many people sort of assume that these that that these are contradictory, or at least that these are con- or at least that these are identities of my own that are in, in tension with each other. Uh, but in this book, I'm trying to explain how I can regard how we can regard the Bible at once as being a sacred book and a human book, a, a book that is written by human beings, but has a divine authority behind it. Um, And I'm trying to show how the Bible itself and some elements of rabbinic literature have room for that kind of theology, have room for a theology that sees the Bible as a mixture of human and divine elements. Because of the human elements, we can recognize that sometimes the Bible is fallible. Because of the divine elements, the tradition that comes out of the Bible remains a binding, authoritative, sacred tradition, but because we recognize that there are human elements within that tradition, and there are fallible elements within that tradition, it's a tradition that's open to change and revision, uh, even though it remains authoritative. Hmm. So, I guess for some listeners, they might be thinking, okay, how... um uh, well, two things. First of all, you're speaking of divine and human elements as if we're talking about separate parts. Do you see those two as overlapping in the in Scripture such that something that is human and fallible is simultaneously divine, or are you talking about separate elements when you say that? I think it can be both. I think that usually it's overlapping. I think it's usually overlapping. Um, but perhaps there are some passages in the Bible 
where I think that it, the human part comes, the human element comes to the fore, and it's harder to notice the divine element. Um, I, I see the Bible's specific wording, the actual wording of each verse in the Bible, as having been written down by human beings who were responding to a real encounter with the divine, who were responding to God's self-revelation, to God's commanding self-revelation, to God's law-giving. But the actual wording of the, the laws that we find in the Bible and the teachings that we find in the Bible, I think that wording is the wording of human beings from ancient Israel, the, uh, prophets and priests and Levites and sages and scribes who are mediating how their community is understanding God's words. And I think there are some occasions, not many, but some, and they're very significant, where the human understanding of what God was commanding, I think, has just been so vastly misunderstood um, that it's hard to, to get back to the what's divine behind it. When there are, when there are a few verses in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy uh, that command us to kill all the Amalekites, men, women, children, babies, the, the, whole, the whole nation, um, I think that uh, I don't see how a just God could have given such a command. I don't see how a merciful God could have given such a command. Certainly not a God who is both just and merciful. Uh, you know, that, that's a place where I think that human beings, perhaps hearing a, a command that people have to protect themselves, have so exaggerated or misunderstood that command that they've produced a, a verse where the divine element is, is pretty minimal. There aren't many of those in the Bible, but there are some. And I think that if you're assuming that the Bible really is the Word of God, there's no human element, and that God is perfect, and you see a verse like that, then the whole thing collapses. Then your whole religious life has to collapse. Um, but I think if, if we realize that there are, there are human beings, our ancestors, our forebears in ancient Israel, who were writing down their interpretation of God's will, we can understand that, by and large, they're getting it right. Here and there, they're getting it wrong, and it's our responsibility um, as, as the inheritors of this document to continue the process of, uh, of understanding and recording God's will. And sometimes that will mean modifying laws that are in the system. That doesn't mean that the system lacks authority, but the system has some flexibility. So, for that example of the destruction of the Amalekites, um, which is admittedly a, a very, very difficult text um, for Jews and Christians, I'm sure. Um, so, it, it, do you still see that as having some constructive function as it's reinterpreted within Jewish tradition or Christian tradition? Does it have some positive function such that it is still operating authoritatively, or is it simply superseded in other texts or offset by other texts? That's a great question. I suppose it depends a little bit how we phrase things. Um, I, I think it has. I think it does have some constructive roles. For one thing, in Jewish tradition, it's significant to see how uncomfortable the rabbis are with that with those verses and with similar verses not identical verses but with somewhat similar verses about the Canaanites um, when it comes to verses about the Canaanites that talk about either killing Canaanites or kicking the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan the rabbis uh, in the Talmud make very clear that since the time of the Assyrian Emperor Sennacherib in, in, in the biblical period um, the nations of the world have been mixed up because the Assyrians deported peoples and moved different peoples around, and therefore none of the biblical laws that apply to Canaanites and Hittites and so forth, none of those laws are applicable anymore. So the rabbis have their own ways of making clear uh, that these laws are no longer in force. Uh, there's a famous statement about verses of this sort uh, in rabbinic literature, um, Drosh v'kabel schar, um, interpret these uh, 
do far-reaching interpretations on these verses and receive a reward. The idea being that maybe some of these verses are there as a sort of prod, uh, as, a, as a piece of sand in Scripture that allow those who come after Scripture, that allow the rabbis to create a pearl, you might say. So I think the verse itself may not be so instructive, but the way the verse functions in Jewish interpretive history, in reception history in Judaism, <clears throat> that is very, very instructive, uh, and I think very, very significant. So just acknowledging, seeing that, just for us to see that the, it's not only us modern readers who have trouble with that verse, the classical rabbis had trouble with these verses, and they themselves have methods for kind of taming them, I think that that's useful. And, and here, this might be different for, let's say, for a Jew or a Catholic as opposed to a Protestant. For Jews and for Catholics, the, the history of interpretation um, in some strains of Jewish and, and Catholic thought, the history of interpretation is really as important or more important than Scripture itself. And so it's not such an odd thing for a, for a Jew to say, this verse is important because it, it created a tradition of interpretation that tried to erase the verse. The verse is important for, for prompting later Jews to try to erase the verse. That actually probably makes a little bit more sense in a Jewish or Catholic context, uh, where we don't have any doctrine of sola scriptura, uh, and where tradition, in our case rabbinic tradition for Jews, um, tradition is as important, or maybe really even on a practical level, more important than scripture. I could see where for a Protestant, in a way, verses like that might seem more troublesome. Sure. And it, it's funny, I remember talking with an Israeli woman uh, about the Amalekites, and, uh, and she said, oh yeah, growing up, we used to write Amalek on the bottom of our shoes. And, uh, you know, kind of as the uh, embodiment of those who were opposed to the Jewish people um and 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 in that sense you had this sort of metaphorical practice that of interpreting that text um even continuing into modern day that's correct and there are other practices actually that that do can that that do continue when a scribe is writing um certain sacred jewish scrolls um the first thing a scribe does when beginning work in the morning is the scribe writes the name in hebrew amalek and then crosses it out. Um, and one of the commands about the Amalekites is that you're supposed to, um, to you sort of erase them. Um, and that is sort of hyper-literalized. I mean, another way of sort of taming a problematic verse, instead of taking it metaphorically, surprisingly enough, is to hyper-literalize it. So that, that verse is hyper-literalized in, in, in the command in Jewish law. This is an actual commandment that you should write the name Amalek and then cross it out. And I think that the the verse itself, I suppose that that there is a lesson in that verse that that is an important lesson, that scripture is telling us that there is such a thing as real evil out there in the universe. Um, Radical love is not the solution to every single problem. Radical love is a solution to a lot more problems than people realize. A lot of problems that people try to solve with hate could be much more easily and uh, and economically and, and productively solved by love. But it is also the case that, no, there is such a thing out there as radical evil, and sometimes you really do have to get up and defend yourself. Um, and. You know, as the Talmud puts it, sometimes when a person's coming to kill you, you've got to get up and kill him first. And so I think to that extent, the verses about Amalek, these two verses, a passage in Exodus, a passage in Deuteronomy, I think that at a metaphorical level, they do have an important message. Um, But it's very, very easy to see people misusing these verses, and I think that I'm just very, very wary about these verses, uh, because rendering the verses safe by, by interpreting them metaphorically or rendering them safe by interpreting them hyper-literally the way a Jewish scribe does every single day, that's useful. But I think it's also important sometimes to, for us to acknowledge 
that there are mistakes within our tradition. Uh, there's a phrase in, in Hebrew, emunash um, which means perfect faith. Uh, there's a, uh, and people sometimes say, um, I believe with perfect faith in this and this Jewish belief. There are, there are 13 particular beliefs that the Jewish philosopher Maimonides in the Middle Ages saw as the core beliefs of Judaism, and some people recite those every day with, with the phrasing, I believe with perfect faith that such and such. The truth is, I think that perfect faith is very, very dangerous. I don't believe in emunah shlema. I don't believe in perfect faith. I think that perfect faith leads religious people to do terrible things. Once we're realizing that scripture itself, to some small degree, is fallible, because scripture itself, to a significant degree, includes a human element, at that point, it no longer ever makes sense to kill somebody for your for the sake of your religion. Because as a religious Jew who believes that the Bible was written by human beings and that the authority behind the Bible is divine, but that the specific laws were written by humans, every time that I'm observing a Jewish law, every morning when I recite the morning prayer service and I put on the tefillin that Jews, the phylacteries that Jews wear for the daily uh, morning service, I'm aware of the fact that I'm fulfilling God's will as the Bible and rabbinic literature expresses that will. And there's a tiny little piece of me that's also aware that, well, maybe not. Maybe we're getting this one wrong. In which case, you know, it's not a terrible thing, you know. Um, but once you've got that tiny, tiny little bit of doubt as part of your faith, I think your faith is a much more mature faith and a much more productive and safe faith. If you've got a faith that doesn't have any doubt whatsoever, well, then you're this, you can become the sort of religious pe person that we read about on the front page of pretty much every single day's newspaper nowadays. And so part of what I'm saying is that the theology that I'm putting forth in this book, Scripture, uh, Re Revelation and Authority, um, the, the, the theology that I'm putting forth there, it's not an unreligious theology. It's not a theology a theology that's sort of religious, I think it's a really significantly religious authority because what I'm trying to say is that the most mature faith, the most honest faith, the faith that connects us most intimately with God is a faith that includes doubt. And a faith that includes doubt is good in all sorts of ways, one of which is that it's not as likely to produce religious violence. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's really helpful. Do you see any, um, is, is there a pernicious side to doubt? I, I'm, I'm with you in terms of the, the value of doubt and moving away from a kind of uh, certainty that just bulldozes other people and um, other opinions and perspectives, but is there a pernicious side to it? Oh, I think so. I, I think you're really, um, you're right to point that out. I think it's something that I, I should point out more in my own work, and I, I, I don't do it enough. But just as people who are sure of themselves, who, who are sure they have truth, can make truth into a bulldozer, we see all the time that there are people who make doubt into a bulldozer as well. Uh, there are people who have sort of radical doubt and claim that there is no such thing as truth, but there's, there are no facts. I mean, I think in Western culture today, and especially in American culture, we are living in this terribly pernicious moment in which there are no facts anymore. Everything is subject to doubt, and therefore there's new truth. People can make up whatever truth they want, and that's, um, that's terribly damaging to society. I mean, American, American culture is sort of splitting because there are just really basic, basic facts that we can't agree on. I think that um, just as you've you can find religious people who take truth and make it into a bulldozer. You can find non-religious people who take a different truth and turn it into a bulldozer. And in the work of people, let's say like the New Atheists, those are people who are taking doubt and making it into a bulldozer. And if you look at what the New Atheists write, it's, it's, such, a, it, you know, it's such a silly doubt. I mean, the sort of questions that they raise about religion are so ignorant, they know so little about actual Judaism and actual Christianity. Um, and like, 
you know, you really think that Thomas Aquinas didn't already think through this question? That doesn't mean you've got to accept Thomas Aquinas' answer to the question, but he was a really smart guy. You really think he didn't also recognize the question that you're bringing up? You know, but the new atheists are, are just sort of bringing up cheap, easy doubts um, and making them into a bulldozer to try to say all religion is silly. Yeah, yeah. And and um, yeah, acting as if they're the first ones to discover that text about the Amalekites, you know, and, and, and raise it to you know, religious consciousness. Right. As if though the rabbis themselves in the Talmud hadn't already done that, um, you know, 1,500 years ago. Sure. Um, sure. I'd like to switch gears for a moment and do a speed round if you're up for that. Uh, so I'll the, give it a try. the idea is you have uh, about five seconds to answer a question, and or if your your answer should be about five seconds long, and uh, no need for nuance. All right. Gotcha. Okay. This should be should be a fun challenge for me because like the one thing I don't do well is is speed. I always tell my I always tell my kids anything worth doing is worth doing slowly which explains why my Psalms commentary still hasn't come out in spite of the fact that I've signed multiple contracts with dates of them that have all, all passed by. But I'm going to give it a try. Five well, seconds, well, maybe okay. the speed round can be a sort of mental exercise to get you in gear for the Psalms commentary. It all, it all feeds back into that. Okay, you have to write a children's book. What's it about? Gosh, I have to write a children's book. What's it about? Um, in sixth grade, we had to write a children's book, and I wrote a great little book that I thought was fun at the time about a mouse. A mouse who goes to Mars. So I think that I'll, I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to answer for that one because that one I've already written. Okay, fantastic. It's probably in a box somewhere. I don't know where is it that, is. Is that coming out soon? That... I don't think so. Okay. I don't think I, maybe right. I can negotiate it into my next contract with you know, with some university press as part yeah. of a package deal. Seems like a good good option. Uh, okay, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? One idea in biblical studies that needs to die is that we need to, and also that we can date biblical texts with precision. Okay. Well, you just put a lot of people out of work. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I once gave the long version of, this, of that answer as a, um, as a lecture at the Columbia Bible Seminar to a room full of Google scholars. And I, the, the description, the invitation for that event read, ended by saying, um, Professor Summer will show that an enormous amount of Google scholarship is therefore useless. Then he will duck. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've heard a lot of people say that we don't need to worry about dating text, but I don't hear a lot of people pushing it further to say relative dating isn't important. Would you go that to that step as well? I think that relative dating is important, and that often relative dating is probably possible in very, very broad terms. But biblical scholars often try to date texts, whether as a, whether relatively or precisely, using a method that simply holds no water whatsoever. And, uh, and uh, the most common way of dating text in biblical studies, whether relatively or absolutely, is to say, this text expresses an idea that would have made sense at such and such a period of time, or this idea must have come after that idea. And that's just, uh, that's just, not good scholarship. Um, original, original writers, brilliant writers, geniuses, they come up with ideas that are surprising and seem inappropriate all the time. That's what it means to be original or brilliant. So in a sense, what biblical studies are saying is, well, let's start from the, the, let's start from the presumption that there's no such thing as an original or brilliant writer. But there are original brilliant writers and um, and the fact that people are writing, are, people are carefully reading biblical texts thousands of years after they were written, tells me that some of these biblical writers were really original, brilliant geniuses. Um, and so, trying to treat them as if though they weren't is barking up exactly the wrong tree. All right, back to the speed round. Okay, how, sorry about that. How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> You're probably like Maria. You sing lots of songs while running around the mountains in Austria. Okay. Uh, top three songs on your playlist. Top three songs on my playlist. Well, if you ask me for my favorite song, that's that's easy. It's a 17-way tie of all 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 like a lot of Springsteen songs. But top three songs on my on my playlist, I guess I would say. Um, so you got Bruce Springsteen on there. I'd say the first entire side of Born to Run. 
and then the entirety of Darkness on the Edge of Town. That's more than three, but when you're dealing with Bruce, you got to have more than three. Okay. Um, would you, uh, if you had to pick a super uh, superpower, invisibility or super strength? Invisibility. Okay. Um, what advice would you have for aspiring biblical scholars? So apart from the usual, like the job market's really hard. Right? Let's, <laughs> let's assume that's out of the way. They know okay. that. That uh, is the first thing but, I said. But they, but they nonetheless... They persist. They want to get into the field. What would you say? I would say two things. Have a plan B, because the job market's awful, um, and work on plan B during graduate school. I guess the other thing I would say is learn modern Hebrew. A lot of Biblical scholars don't, um, but there are all sorts of different reasons that it's, it's worth learning modern Hebrew as well, as well as Biblical Hebrew. Okay, fantastic. Uh, what resources have really helped you on your journey as a Biblical scholar? broad terms. Gosh, what resources. Uh, I'm sitting in my office surrounded by lots of books. You can probably see one of my bookshelves behind me. So uh, I'm really into resources. But for me, the most important resources are the most basic ones. Um, concordances, dictionaries, grammar books. Um, I would say that if I had all, for my entire library, you can kind of look at uh, uh, my Skype screen and you can see part of it. If I could take just one book, and if I had to use just that one book, that book as a biblical scholar, I would say the Brown Driver Briggs Dictionary. That old BDB dictionary from 130 years ago, still the best dictionary of biblical Hebrew available, still an incredible gold mine of information. Mm -hmm. Yep, takes a licking, keeps on ticking. All right. Uh, at what sport or physical activity do you stand the best chance of winning? <laughs> um, uh, thumb wrestling. Okay. Oh, impressive. Um, what does the acronym, this is a um, trivia question, what does the acronym SCUBA stand for? I have absolutely no idea. Self but I'm going to guess that the U might be underwater. Hey, that's, that's one out of five. Um, Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Cool. All that right. makes sense. Wow. I never knew that. Um, in 20 seconds, what on earth is going on with the strange fire offered by Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10? Uh, they did nothing wrong. They just got too close to God. And God is dangerous. And God is ultimately irrational and untamable. That event, setting up the, the tent of meeting, was an attempt to make God containable. And this, this was a reminder that God is not containable. Mm, all right. Um, last question here. What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? In the last 50 years? Oh, man, you've just given me an opportunity to insult a whole lot of colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to take a very easy well, that, way that, out. That would be the least significant, and then that would be really harsh. But, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, but most colleagues I don't really care about insulting. Um, <laughs> So I'm gonna. So so you, you've given me an easy way out. Usually, when a person asks a question like that, they include the phrase, "and you're not allowed to mention your doctoral advisor's book." But you didn't actually say that. So I'm gonna say, "Biblical interpretation in ancient Israel" by my doctoral advisor, um, Michael Fishbane. I think uh, it's it, it's a brilliant book that shows us just how much tradition and interpretation is present within Scripture itself. It shows us that tradition and scripture are the same thing, and therefore I think it's a tremendously important book, not only for biblical studies, but for theology. Yeah, I think you're maybe the second person that said that book, so it's not not surprising. So I, I didn't realize Fishbeam was your doctoral uh, supervisor. Mm -hmm. Is that at Chicago, or where, where was he? He when I, Well, actually, I started graduate school at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, then I moved to Brandeis University to study with Fishbane. While I was at Brandeis, um, Fishbane received an offer from the University of Chicago and moved to the chair in Jewish studies at the University of Chicago, so I actually moved with him to Chicago. So my coursework I did at Brandeis and at Hebrew University, but my doctoral dissertation I wrote at Chicago, and my PhD is from Chicago. Okay, so you got the best of three worlds there. I really did. Yeah, I was um, actually very, very fortunate. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, uh, just, it's a good transition back to, to your book. Um, uh, obviously, you, you talk a lot about sign, the Sinai revelation in Exodus and point out in your book 
a number of the ambiguities regarding what exactly the people and or Moses heard at the mountain. I'm just wondering if you could explain some of some of the ways that the text might be foregrounding that ambiguity. Sure. When one reads through the account of the law giving at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapters 19, 20, and 24, it, if you read closely, it turns out that there are um, five different ways that that text raises the question, what exactly did the people hear? It's not clear whether the people heard God speaking with a human-type voice, uttering the actual words of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, or the people heard part, but not all, of the Ten Commandments, or maybe the people heard nothing of the Ten Commandments, and they only heard the specific words of the Ten Commandments through the mediation of their, of their prophet, um, of their teacher, Moses. There are five different ways that the text does this. Like just so, for example, one of the things that shows up in that text is that the, the people heard God's kol. The Hebrew word is kol. The word kol in Hebrew could either mean voice or thunder. And depending on whether the people heard God's voice or God's thunder, you get a very different theological picture of what happened at Mount Sinai. If they heard if they heard God's voice, that means they heard God speaking language like a human being. They heard specific commandments from God, the commandments that we get in the Ten Commandments. If they heard God's thunder, that means that they had a sense of the overwhelming commanding presence of God, but they might not have gotten specific commandments. They might have gotten a command, but not commandments from God, depending on how you translate the word kol. Now, the word kol shows up seven times in that passage, and sometimes there seems to be a hint that you should understand it as voice. Sometimes there's a hint that you should understand it as thunder. Sometimes there's a hint that goes both ways. Just for example, when it says that God answered Moses with a voice, and the people overheard God answering Moses with a voice, or with a, well, with a kol, you might think that, okay, well, he's answering Moses. An answer, that must be in language. That makes you, makes you think that it's a voice. Yeah, they're but having the, a conversation. They're having a conversation. It, it, that's, what, that's what the text seems to say. But the word for answer in Hebrew that's used there, Hashem ya'anenu bekol, God will answer ya'anenu, sounds like the Hebrew word for cloud, anan. And therefore, that's a word that we would associate with a cloud, with lightning and thunder. And elsewhere, the passage says that there was thunder, that there was lightning, that there was a cloud. By using a word for answer that reminds us of the meteorological accompaniments of Revelation, the text is at once telling us, think voice, but also telling us, think thunder. Um, and the text doesn't, I, I don't think the text resolves this. The text wants us to wonder whether God spoke in language or God communicated in a way that went beyond language. So there's five different ways that the text makes us wonder whether God spoke in language or God communicated in thunder. And I think that ultimately the text of Exodus 19, 20, 24 doesn't really want us to know for sure what Revelation was. The text wants us to wonder. The text wants us to ask certain questions. The text wants us to engage in a certain discussion. The text of the Bible here in this, in some ways, maybe the most crucial scene in the entire Hebrew Bible, the text doesn't want us to know what the right doctrine is. The text wants us to engage in a conversation about the right doctrine. Hmm. And, and, and you see that conversation within Scripture itself. So you see some traditions are taking a decidedly, um, you know, voice uh, interpretation of that. And others, it's the thunder and the meteor meteorological experience that the people are hearing and engaging with, right? Correct. In the Bible itself, I think that there are traditions that do say it's voice. The book of Deuteronomy tries to say it's definitely a voice. There is, the people heard the whole Ten Commandments. Um, but then there are other voices that go the other way. 
even in Deuteronomy itself, in Deuteronomy chapters chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, there is an addition into the text of Deuteronomy by a later scribe, not the original author of Deuteronomy, that reminds us, no, no, it, they didn't hear the whole Ten Commandments. They, 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 it all went through Moses. So even in Deuteronomy, which tries to say, no, that the whole people heard the whole Ten Commandments, there's this alternate opinion that is woven into the text itself, the text that is part of Jewish and Christian scripture, that says, no, 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 they didn't hear anything of it at all. That debate is, is already present in the Bible. It continues in rabbinic literature. It continues in medieval Judaism. And it becomes much, much more intensive on the question of the nature of revelation in modern times. There are modern Jewish theologians who try to argue that the law-giving at Sinai did not involve language. I'm thinking here especially of the Jewish theologian Franz Rosenzweig, or the Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig, um, in a somewhat different way also, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great Jewish theologian who used to teach at JTS, of course, um, long before, you know, long before I was there. Um, that debate is, is a major, major debate in modern Judaism. But what I'm trying to do in, in my book is to show uh, that the, the roots of that debate show up in Scripture itself. This is not just a, a modern debate between liberal and traditionalist Jews. This is a debate that already is happening in its own way within the text of the book of Exodus and within the text of the book of Deuteronomy. Hmm. And I, I've always been intrigued by the fact that this central moment for the Israelites, as it's described in Exodus, has so much ambiguity that seems almost intentional or perhaps the result of an event that defied categorization. So I think you've highlighted the the ambiguity regarding what people heard, and there's ambiguity what regarding what people saw, and then there's all this ambiguity about where exactly Moses is when and when he went up the mountain and when he came down the mountain. So, do you think there's something intentional about, intentionally ambiguous about the way this is presented in Exodus, or is that it? You see that as an accident? Oh, no, no. I think that the authors of Exodus 19 through 24 make the text they actually go out of their way to make the text intentionally ambiguous, in part because that's the most honest way to talk about revelation. Revelation is an event, especially the, the, this full-fledged revelation of God at Mount Sinai, is an event that simply goes beyond human cognitive, human cognitive abilities. It goes beyond the perceptual capabilities of the human body and the cognitive capabilities of the human mind. So how are you going to accurately and honestly portray such an event? The only way you can do it accurately and honestly is A, to portray it ambiguously, to say that we're not sure what we just perceived, we're not sure what we just experienced, and B, to portray it in such a way that there's even some disagreement. Different people Look, even for normal human events that are a bit overwhelming, different human people will perceive different parts of it. And so a day later, different human people will have different memories of the event. A, you know, God forbid, a car accident. Different people on the witness, side, witness stand talking about the car accident, if there's a court case, will contradict each other, not because they're lying, but because it was a, a, a sudden overwhelming event and none of them were able to absorb all the information they're not lying, they just don't actually know exactly what happened. They're telling their memory of it. Well, what we're getting, I think, in Exodus 19 through 24 is a series of different memories of an event that was infinitely more complex than a car accident. And the compiler or the editor of the book of Exodus has woven together several different accounts that are remembering different real aspects of that overwhelming event. So I think it is quite intentionally ambiguous and even intentionally a bit self-contradictory. That's the only way that one can, with integrity and honesty, try, and honesty, try to describe that event. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I want to bring things to a, a conclusion soon, but uh, one of the things that surprised me about your book is is where you landed. So I, I suppose one way of writing a book like this would have been to say, look, there are these um, conflicting accounts in the Bible. We've got to deal with that. Um, you know, critical scholarship 
and and faith can be held together, but you know we need to be honest about these challenges in Scripture. But you, you ended on a call for humility, and you said on page 249 of your book, part of our job in the Sinaitic dialogue is to be silent in God's presence in order to be open to God's voice. And I just wondered um, if you could comment briefly on where you've landed us as readers of this book in that call for humility and why you felt like that was so important to emphasize. So, in terms of where I land in the end, um, actually, I, I, I think I land in, in two places. I want to I want to mention one of the others besides humility, if I if I may. I think that one place that I land, I think that surprises many readers, is that I'm actually extremely traditionalist. You might say extremely right wing in a Jewish setting in my insistence on the binding authority of the law that comes out of the Sinai event. That law, I say, can change over time, the law can be flexible, but one of the things that I point out as a biblical critic is that in spite of their disagreements, all the different authors in the Torah, J, E, P, and D is you know, the way that we refer to them in biblical studies, they all agree that revelation was law-giving, that the revelation to the nation Israel was a law-giving, and that what results from the event at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb is a covenant in which Jews have to obey a law. Um, so in spite of all the differences among the different biblical authors, there are areas of agreement. They disagree about what exactly the law is, what the specifics of the law code should be, but they all agree that this event creates a covenant and that the Jewish people is bound by that covenant, legally bound by that covenant. So that's, that's a sort of, uh, I, I use a sort of modern critical method to read the Bible, but what comes out of that method, where I end up landing, is actually a, a, a very right-wing conclusion. And I, I think that that's really important to emphasize. Um, I also emphasize this idea um, of humility. You're certainly right, Matt, to, to emphasize, to, to note that emphasis. Um, because I think that what comes out of a modern approach to reading the Bible is often that we're not 100% sure. Um, we can't be sure what happened at Mount Sinai because the biblical authors don't want us to be sure. Um, the, the account was very carefully phrased to make us ask questions to make us wonder what was going on. And if scripture is going to some length to make me wonder what was going on, when it would have been perfectly clear within the bounds of the Hebrew language and Hebrew grammar, to be clear about those five different points that I was talking about before where the text is deliberately unclear, that means that ambiguity is a religious value that it's a religious value sometimes not to know something. And I think that ultimately religious people need to recall that at the very, very core of religion, um, of, of many religions, is the recognition that we are creatures created by a creator who is infinitely knowledgeable and compared to whom we are ignorant. Um, and that scripture comes not to tell us for sure what all the truth is, but scripture comes to remind us of our, of our ignorance. I think, again, this comes back to some of what we were talking about before. Sometimes religious people are so sure that they have the truth that in making the truth into a bulldozer, they end up being the exact opposite of religious. A big part of religion is supposed to be that we recognize how small we are relative to God, how little we know relative to God, and therefore it would be good for religious leaders and religious people in their day-to-day -day life, in their public pronouncements, to, to behave with a certain degree of humility and to, to admit, I think that I'm carrying out the dictates of scripture and tradition correctly, but the truth is I can't know for sure. And that um, if we were to act that way as religious people, as religious leaders, I think that we would be A, more honest, and B, I think that we would 
we would do religion a favor uh, because I think religion is under attack in the modern world for a number of reasons, but some of the time it's our fault as religious people uh, that what we're that we're portraying too much confidence and a little more humility would achieve something very, very useful, um, very, very useful for making God's will better known. Hmm. Well, uh, Professor Sommer, that's a really helpful point of challenge to leave us with. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript today. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much, Matt. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, likewise. And I'm sorry that my quick answers were, were much too long, but like that's, uh, uh, well, there we go. <laughs> that's who I am. <laughs> no, they're great. Thanks. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.